Good morning. We're reading today from Psalm 118, verses 15 to 29, and from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. Psalm 118, verses 15 to 29. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. And now reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Uh, now's the time uh, for children uh, to get going on the activities that uh, you've maybe downloaded from Darren uh, and time for the rest of us to get going on these verses in 1 Peter chapter 2. You've been with us in recent weeks. You'll know that we're, we're moving very slowly through this chapter, uh, little bite-sized chunks. Um, and, and the advantage of bite-sized chunks is that you really get to savour the flavour uh, of each individual piece. The downside, though, is that you might miss out on the big picture. So for a moment as we begin, I want to kind of stand back, as it were, from the table and view the whole feast uh, that is being set before us here. Because there are some big things going on. Uh, this chapter picks up one of the great themes of the Bible. The question of how it is going to be possible for God not just to dwell among his people, 
but actually for God's people to dwell with him, to be close to him, to draw near to him. Imagine that someone famous, someone you really, really wanted to meet, uh, moved into your neighbourhood. That would be exciting, wouldn't it? Um, But then imagine that you started to begin to see them walking down your street, uh, maybe bumped into them at the corner shop, uh, and then found that they actually invited you to, to come and spend an evening with them in their home. See, it's one thing to have somebody famous living in your neighbourhood, very different thing to have been invited into their home to meet with them personally, face to face. Well, that's what we're on about here. Not just God dwelling among his people, but God actually meeting with his people, drawing close to them, as close as it's possible to be. The Bible, of course, begins that way, doesn't it? Uh, God walking in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day, and, and Adam and Eve able to meet with him there. But it's not very long before disobedience to God brings distance and separation. Adam and Eve driven out of the Garden of Eden, no longer able to meet with God as they did before. And so begins, if you like, that the great puzzle, the great problem of the Bible. How will God and people come together again. In the Bible storyline, what comes next are some temporary and inadequate solutions. Uh, First, the tent or the tabernacle, uh, which was a place where special people could meet with God. Sometimes it was called the tent of meeting. Uh, And so people like Moses uh, would be able to enter into God's presence uh, in the tent of meeting, doing so on behalf of the people. Uh, Later, the tabernacle uh, was replaced by the bricks and mortar temple. And in the centre of the temple was the Holy of Holies, the the place that that kind of symbolically where God dwelt. Uh, And a priesthood was established who were to offer sacrifices in order that once a year uh, the high priest would be able to enter into the Holy and Holies. Uh, enter into the very presence of God, draw close to him in that way. What the temple therefore did was was make two things clear. Um, One was just how hard it was to draw near to God. He was too holy, too too blazingly pure uh, to allow people just to simply saunter into his presence. Uh, And the temple also taught that the means of entry had something to do with sacrifice, something to do with the the shedding of blood in sacrifice that provided for a cleansing, a spiritual cleansing that allowed people to come close to God. See, one thing, for God to dwell among his people, the temple was there in Jerusalem, representing his presence among them, but it was a very different thing for them to be able to enter in, to be close, to draw near to God. But with that background, do you you now see what Peter is doing in the second chapter of the letter? He's saying that things have dramatically changed, that the physical house has been eclipsed and replaced by what he describes as a spiritual house. 
and that the Old Testament priesthood, that too has been eclipsed and replaced by a new holy priesthood. Something altogether new has taken place. The model, if you like, has been replaced by the reality. Physical stones, which were only ever a model of the living stones that Peter writes about here. The Old Testament patterns were just shadows. This is the real thing. Because in what Peter is describing here, the Bible's great problem has been resolved. Finally, God's people can draw near to him. They can enter into his very presence. They can be as close to him as it is possible to be. Well, how is such a thing possible, given that it is the great problem of the Bible? Well, we're told in verse 6 that this closeness has been made possible because, verse 6, God has laid a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. God has done something new. He's built something new. He's established a new meeting place, and he's done it through Jesus Christ. That's what this passage is telling us, and that's why this cornerstone matters so much. The cornerstone is like the foundation stone, like the central stone, like the first stone that you put down, and then you build everything else around it. And if you get the cornerstone right, then the whole building will be right. Get the cornerstone wrong, the whole building is wrong. Uh, years ago, uh, here at Christchurch, we embarked on a fairly major building project. And uh, Richard Newman, who many will know, uh, was in charge of it. And the very first thing we had to do was widen the, the, the gateway into the churchyard so that skip lorries and delivery lorries uh, could bring stuff in for the building project that was to, to start. Uh, and that meant taking down a, a huge um, brick pillar uh, about uh, eight foot tall um, and uh, moving it along a few, week, a few feet to, to widen the entrance. And I came in one morning uh, and found Richard staring at the rebuilt pillar. And I said, what's up? And he said, it's not straight. And I said, you what? And he said, it's not straight. They've got it off. Uh, they got the foundation wrong. Uh, it's not square. It's not, not as it should be. And I said, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to tell them to take it down again and rebuild it. And I said, you what? It's an eight-foot pillar. There must be hundreds and hundreds of bricks in there. And he said, it doesn't matter. They've got the foundation wrong. Uh, they've got the pillar wrong. It's no good. I said, I'm going to go inside. Good luck talking to those three great brickies when they arrive. But he did. And they knew he was right. They knew that they hadn't got the foundation right and that the pillar wasn't as it should be. And they took it down and they rebuilt it. That's how much it matters, getting the cornerstone in its proper place. Because if you don't do that, the whole structure is wrong. Well, this passage is telling us that Jesus is God's cornerstone. And you have to begin there. Because if you're going to be a living stone in the building that God has made, in which meeting with God is possible, then you have to begin with the cornerstone that God has provided. 
that's the big picture. Uh, we're going to sing a song now, a song that focuses in on this idea of Cornerstone. It's a new song, um, so you might want to listen or join in as you wish. Um, and then after the song, uh, we're going to look at some of the detail uh, in these few verses. Well, if you've been standing, do please take a seat again. Uh, and you'll see that uh, I've come outside uh, for a little bit of the evening. And any suggestion that that's because uh, the editions that I recorded earlier on have turned out to be no good is entirely accurate. We've seen so far the big picture. Uh, and the big picture is that God has established this glorious, wonderful meeting place with Jesus as the chief cornerstone of it. Uh, and now what I want to do is notice just a little bit of the detail in verses 6 and 7 and 8. And you'll notice that mostly those verses consist of quotations from the Old Testament. And the funny thing is here that they aren't actually verses that Peter chose. Now, in, in a sense, actually, they're verses that Jesus himself chose. Let me explain what I mean. Um, Jesus told a parable. It's often called the parable of the tenants. You find it in Luke chapter 20, but it's there in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel as well. Uh, the, the story um, that Jesus uh, presented there was of a, um, an owner of a vineyard who rented the vineyard out to tenants. Um, and then at harvest time, sent a messenger uh, to collect his share of uh, the fruit of the harvest. But instead of giving them uh, the fruit that they should do, uh, the tenants instead just gave him a good beating. And it happened over and over again, messenger after messenger. Some they beat, some they stoned, some they killed. And eventually the owner of the vineyard decided that he would send his own son, saying they'll respect my son. But in fact, the tenants saw the son and plotted together to kill him, imagining that then the vineyard would be theirs. And Jesus wraps the parable up by saying, what do you imagine that the owner will do? He will bring these wretched tenants to a wretched end and give the vineyard to others. Now, the original hearers of Jesus' parable knew only too well the implications because the Old Testament presented um, God's people uh, as, uh, as being given a vineyard. It was one of the images of the Old Testament. So they understood that what Jesus was talking about was God's decision to, to give the people the land, to make them his special possession. And here is Jesus saying that, that he's going to evict them and hand his special privileged status and the land that goes with it to, to somebody else. And the people in response say, surely not, God would never do that. At which point Jesus asks, then what is meant by the saying, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And that everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and everyone on whom it falls will be crushed. See, he quotes these verses from Psalm 118 and from Isaiah. Verses that anticipate the way in which the Messiah would be rejected. And Peter was there. Peter heard him use these verses to make this point. And now here is Peter, uh, taking and borrowing them and using them 
in his own letter. And the message is equally stark. Which brings us to just two things as we close. The possible attitudes that you can take to Jesus and then the consequences of those attitudes. Let's begin uh, with the two possible attitudes. Because clearly one attitude that you can take, one, one approach you can take to Jesus is to believe in him. You see that in verse 7. To you who believe this stone is precious. Here's the person who hears the things that Jesus says, hears about the things that Jesus does, and they believe that he is who he claims to be. And and, and they didn't do that in a, in a kind of distant, kind of academic, arm's length kind of way. No, no, they believe that this is wonderful. They believe that this is God's very own cornerstone, the foundation building upon whom meeting with God is possible and that makes him as precious as precious can be. You, you know how it is with precious things, something that you really really treasure. Well you take great care of it, you, you always know where it is, you, you always look after it. It matters so much that of course you do. Well is that Jesus to you? Precious, prized above all. But of course there's an alternative view of Jesus here, which is described at the end of verse 7 as, as not believing, as rejecting this chosen cornerstone. Um, and then further on in verse 8, it's described as disobeying the message. It's interesting language, isn't that? Disobeying the message. Um, we kind of expect it to, to disbelieve, but actually disobeying tells us something of the nature of the relationship between us and God. We tend to think of the Christian message, don't we, as a sort of invitation. You know, would you like to believe? A sort of an appeal from God. But it's not really, is it? No, because God doesn't make suggestions to us about things that we might be interested in considering. No, God is God, our creator, and he speaks to us, his creatures, with authority with command. He tells us how things are and he tells us how we should respond and to fail to respond to him, well therefore that is disobedience. He's not suggesting to us a, a way we might consider about how we might like to live life. He commands us as our king. So when we disbelieve in the son, we are also disobeying his command. We're like, in a sense, the tenants in the vineyard. The son has come and demands rightfully what is his. And if we won't do as he says, we disobey. So, so there are the two attitudes. One to believe, the other to disbelieve. One to accept, the other to reject. One to obey, the other to stand in defiant disobedience. And each of those two attitudes has a consequence. Let's begin with those who reject. And what verse 7 tells us is that for those who reject, because they're rejecting the cornerstone, that stone becomes for them a stone, verse 8, that causes them to stumble and a rock 
that causes them to fall. And understand what kind of a fall this is. This isn't a sort of trip over, graze your knee kind of fall. No, this is a catastrophic fall. A sort of a fall that, that leads to utter collapse and complete ruin. Of course it does. Because this rejection is, is rejecting the only way in which it is possible to come close, to be in the presence of God. Reject him and, and, and what do you have? Where can you go? How will you ever draw near then if you've passed this by? Imagine that the Queen commands you to an audience and you refuse. You will not go. You ignore her command to come into her presence and meet with her. Well, how can you imagine that you'd then turn up and insist that she lets you in? On what basis do you imagine that you would have any right, any expectation of her admitting you? But then notice the alternative. If disbelieving leads to stumbling and falling and loss, well, to the one who trusts, verse 6, the one who trusts in this chosen and precious cornerstone, well, we're told there that they will never be put to shame. Never. Which in spiritual terms means that such a person will never experience loss. Never be excluded, never be kept at a distance. But instead they will be accepted, welcomed, brought near. Or will enter into, come close to the very presence of God himself. To, to be a living stone in the house that he has made where he dwells. That's the consequence of believing. Uh, and next week we'll be thinking uh, about what that implies for the way that a believer should live. Indeed, the way that the family of believers uh, should live. Uh, but for now, uh, focus on uh, the response that believers make. See that the Christian life begins with obedient faith. With you and I saying, I believe in this Jesus. I will obey this message. I will be someone who prizes God's Son, this cornerstone on which God's house is built. Now let me lead us in a prayer before we sing. Our Father God, uh, we thank you for sending Jesus to be this cornerstone upon which you would build the house in which you would meet, you will meet, you do meet with your people. How we praise you for such grace shown to us and how we ask that you would, um, you would enable us to prize this Jesus, our precious cornerstone, as we should, uh, knowing all that he has made possible. And we pray it in his name. Amen. We're going to sing a final song, a great song to sing. Uh, you'll be familiar with it, uh, many of you, I guess. Uh, it is describing Jesus as the cornerstone that he is. Uh, let's stand with the music uh, and sing as we close.